We're starting a new segment that I like to call Ask Thoughtbot. Oh. I don't know. Lindsay, welcome back. Hi. Good to be here. If you have a question for Thoughtbot, anyone at Thoughtbot, including Lindsay, including myself, Joe, Chris, anybody at Thoughtbot, email hosts at giantrobots.fm or get me on Twitter at cpytel. Which is an email address we have now confirmed does work. <laughs> That's right. That's really all we were waiting on in order to take questions was confirming that uh, that, that email address worked. So we got two questions in, curiously both from people named Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And they are sort of two opposite ends of the spectrum. So the first one is from Mitchell Hanberg, and that says, Imagine a software consulting business with 100 to 125 people that had bad or non-existent marketing or marketing strategy. What are the top three things? We don't need to just limit it to the top three. Like That's very specific. Should you do to level up your marketing effort? And then how do you communicate those efforts to the rest of the company? So thinking about the bad or non-existent marketing strategy, What I would suggest for really any company is to think about the profile of their customer and start there. So if this is something that you haven't yet done, it is a worthwhile exercise to think about who are your ideal clients or set of clients and are there trends there? Because then from there, it'll impact whatever you wanna do with marketing. So how are you going to find these people and how are you going to create awareness with them? How are you going to speak to them? And ideally- Are there any specific tools or tech, mm-hmm. like how, so when you joined, we created a, what you call the scorecard, mm-hmm. where we listed some past customers and some- Traits. Traits of them. Yeah. Like, were they a funded company, a startup, or you know those kinds of things, different attributes. Is that where you'd start? Is just open-ended trying to categorize customers? Yeah, the, what what are different traits mm-hmm. or characteristics that make sense for you? It could be different mm-hmm. um, by company. Is it a particular thing that's happening in the company? Uh, a, a motivator, a driver? Um, is it a, a specific industry? So do you specialize in a particular technology or are your clients tend to be from a specific industry? Uh, what else is going on at the company? Uh, to build out this little little profile that then is going to really help any of your additional activities that you go and do, I think some of those earlier, you know, quote unquote easier ones would be like, where are they in your community? So meetups or events actually start to meet them and figure out what's important to them, but also have some early conversations and that can also help sort of influence what you're going to do from a marketing standpoint. Mm-hmm. So at 100 to 125 people, you're probably at the size to be able to afford to have someone work on marketing full time, in my experience. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I would think so for sure. Right. And yeah, that's the the tricky thing about a company that maybe doesn't have dedicated marketing or is looking for, you know, quote unquote, low effort things is, you know, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's no real sort of magic bullet for an activity that you do. And then, okay, we did the marketing. Uh, You know, it's something you do have to invest some thought into over time. But that's why I say community things can be sort of a nice step in that direction because, you know, you've identified the people that you want to be engaging with, then you're going out to the places they go and starting to have some of those conversations and it's going to spur other ideas for how you can continue to build those relationships or, you know, maybe you want to start speaking at those events or sponsoring those events and things like that. Mm -hmm. Anything else for that, Mitchell, or should we move on to the next Mitchell? <laughs> um, well, the other question that he had was about communicating to the rest of the company. Oh, right. Yeah. One of the ways that might be easiest is if you already have a standing like team-wide meeting, like an all-hands where maybe you go over your financials or sales goals or, or something like that. Um, that's sort of an easy way that you can then incorporate, hey, by the way, here's some things we're going to try from a marketing perspective. Uh, and then the next time you say, here's some updates on the things we were trying mm-hmm. uh, as far as marketing is concerned. Mm-hmm. And it may be that if you don't have that structure 
at the company, it will seem weird to do that. You know, like maybe you're not setting goals or working on mm -hmm. things and then sharing how they're going with the company. And so in my experience, once you start to do that in one area, you'll realize, oh, this is really good. And you'll start to do that in other areas of the business as well. Yeah. And, you know, a different cadence makes sense for different companies. But having some sort of all hands company wide meeting where you're communicating different kinds of strategies and progress tends to be just a, a generally a, a good communication method keeps people invested and motivated. Yeah. Okay. So the next Mitchell asks, <laughs> and Mitchell Caballoy is at the other end of the spectrum. So he says, I'm a founder of a small web design and development studio in Manila. Since we're a small team, I'm finding it difficult to find time for sales and marketing. What are some low effort things I can do to boost sales and marketing for my company? Yeah, so the low effort can be tricky because <laughs> right. it does take, you know, a bit of time and effort. So again, I, I think the same things would apply as far as figuring out who your target audience is and how to engage with them. Another really great activity, if you're not already doing it, is case studies. So telling the stories of past clients who have had successful engagements that really helps your web visitors, or maybe you're even sending them out proactively to people you want to work with. It helps them understand that people like them have worked with you before, and they had a positive engagement. And that can help tremendously in convincing someone that you're the right firm to work with. That's really great. I think another thing that was true for ThoughtBot was because we're a small team and we're all designers and developers, especially in the beginning, it was unrealistic that any one of us would be able to do everything. And we so we built it into the structure that the whole team was engaged in going to meetups and doing events and open source and blogging and that kind of thing. So the more you can activate the rest of the team when you're small, the better. Yeah, that's a great point. And also lean on your team's strengths. So maybe someone isn't interested in writing blogs but another person is interested in community involvement. Mm -hmm. So figure out what people are excited about and then work with them and encourage them to, to do those things. Cool. Well, Lindsay, thanks again for stopping by and fielding the questions from the audience. Yeah, no problem. If there are any other Mitchells out there with questions, I'm always here. <laughs> and if you are someone named Mitchell or someone not named Mitchell and you have a question, again, you can email us at host at giantrobots.fm or you can hit me up on Twitter at cpytel. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Andrew Bialecki, CEO of Clavio. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Chad. How you doing? Thanks for coming in the studio today. Thanks for having me. So where does the name come from? When we were coming up with names back in, what, 2012 when we started? Uh, my co-founder and I, we wanted to pick a word that something that was like composable. So uh, the Spanish word clavia, uh, we swapped some of the letters out, is a word for kind of like a pin, like a little, uh, almost like a, a wooden dowel or like a pin like on electronics. So we liked the idea that it was something that like connected things together mm -hmm. and that you typically would have like a lot of them and they could kind of be these, you know, kind of linchpins that could kind of hold these, you know, I don't know, big pieces of furniture or, you know, uh, electronics together. And it's like what connected us all. So mm -hmm. like that kind of motif. So before we get too far into it, can you tell people what Clavio is? So Clavio helps consumer businesses of all sizes with basically communicating with their customers. So a lot of that's marketing, but it kind of runs the gamut. And so, um, yeah, we started back in 2012. There's kind of two areas of Clavio. The first three years, we were entirely bootstrapped, and it was mm -hmm. just two of us, uh, my co-founder and I. And uh, like all bootstrap businesses, we grew little by little. But then, uh, yeah, now it comes to today, we're 140 people, almost entirely in Boston. And we're helping over, uh, I think now over 10,000 businesses uh, around the world just grow all the way from just getting started in entrepreneurs to businesses that are scaling to hundreds of millions or billions in uh, revenue. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to go back to when you started. How close to where you're at today in terms of the product was what you started with? Was a dream? Yeah. Yeah. So people ask me, how did you come up with the idea? So one of the stories I have, kind of the genesis stories was, my co-founder and I worked at this enterprise software company just outside of DC. And uh, we were working with these big Fortune 500 companies. Um, and I remember distinctly working on this project. Everything was kind of project-based. 
and uh, we're working on this project with CVS. They sent us this data. The project was how do we make our receipts even longer than I, they are? Right. Yeah. It was, it was all about they had you know obviously uh, you know tens of millions of customers, and they were just curious. I mean, it was kind of a basic problem. They were just curious in kind of clustering those customers. Mm-hmm. You know, who buys from uh, pharmacies? Kind of think of it as like back of the house, front of the house. Who's a pharmacy customer versus a front of the house, which mm-hmm. is the other ninety-five percent of the store. And it was amazing to me that they could send us a hard drive and they just had all this data. And it was obviously all, all anonymized, but they just had it and we could load it you know, into databases and then go do the work, some work on it and come up with some actually interesting insights. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was fascinating you could do that, like that data was just available. And then what was really cool is you saw all these you know, kind of SaaS companies where all of a sudden this data was just API accessible. And so you realize like every business had this data, they just didn't know what to do with it. They were just kind of sitting on it. And they were struggling to build like the systems to kind of process it and then get insights from it and then take action on it, do something with it. So when we started Clavio, I kind of thought of it as two things. We wanted to, one, build the analytics system. So at the time, things like Google Analytics and Mixpanel and Kissmetrics were, you know, were of age and people knew that like product analytics, customer analytics were really important. We wanted to build a system like that. And then we also wanted to build software that would take those insights and would talk to your customers, would do the marketing or automation. Marketing to me is kind of a weird word because it really just means talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. I always thought about it as we build products or I love building products. You work really hard to build them and then you realize a lot of people just don't know how to use them and it's just because nobody's walked them through it. And so that was a big part of it too. It was just explains to people what was out there, what were your products or services, whether you were a tech company like us or you know, um, some sort of consumer company that had maybe a physical product. So when you decided to start the company, what was that like? Did you just quit and start or (laughs) how did that come about? Yeah. So backing up a little bit before that, my path pre-Clavio was, uh, so when I graduated college, actually, I was not an engineer. Mm -hmm. My uh, undergrad degree was in physics and I'd kind of gotten into software later and realized that's what I wanted to do out of college. So then I got a job as an engineer and down in DC and had loved that and then moved back to Boston and decided to join a startup. And probably at that time, I had an inkling that maybe starting a company would be fun someday. So I very intentionally asked around, who are the best you know, CEOs, CTOs? Who are the best people at building companies? And I don't really care even if they end up being successful. I just want to see how they do it so I can mm-hmm. learn from that. So I looked at a lot of companies and ended up joining a company called Performable. You know, David Cancel, who you've talked to before, mm-hmm. and his co-founder, Elias, who were awesome and learned a ton from them. I think after that, uh, I spent you know about nine months after that running a small engineering team. But then at that point, yeah, I knew I wanted to do this. And uh, I remember telling my parents, okay, I think I'm just going to quit my job. And uh, I think they were naive enough. Okay, sure, I sure you can always go find another one. And I convinced you know a friend of mine that had worked at that first company with me who was getting his MBA to, hey, will you just start working with me? Um, he was getting his MBA at MIT. And so I said, we'll just start meeting every afternoon and let's just start working on ideas. And so that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And um, literally for the first year, we were just working out of co-working space. And you knew you what problem you wanted to work on or did you discover the problem along the way? I think we had a rough idea mm-hmm. of where it was, but I was a big believer that we were really good at building things. Mm-hmm. I was doing all the engineering and my co-founder would do all of the talking to customers or a lot of the talking to customers mm-hmm. and or at least setting up those conversations. So we started with a bunch of different ideas, but it became kind of apparent after three or four months, this passion we had around kind of analytics and then doing something around communication and messaging, like those two things together, that was the thing we really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So were you trying to get early customers at that point or were you focused pretty exclusively on building something? Yeah. No, out of the gate, we were, so we were both fortunate enough, we'd saved up enough money from jobs we had in the past that we knew we had probably a good 12 months of mm-hmm. kind of just runway. But from the start, it was, okay, how do we get that first customer? Like, it doesn't count until we get that first customer. So I remember with one of our earlier ideas before we kind of had Clavio, I remember we were working really hard on this other product that was a little bit about how teaching people how to use SaaS applications. So it was a little bit of, if you were trying to teach everybody in your company how to use uh, a wiki or something like that, we'd built some like annotation stuff you could put on top of that website that would teach you about that. And I remember trying to sell it to this one company and it was $100 a month or it was 99 bucks a month is what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we'd spent like four or five hours in multiple conversations with this, you know, a couple of people, this one company before they finally said, you know what, actually this isn't that important. So we were doing a lot of that kind of early customer validation to make mm-hmm. sure somebody was actually willing to pay for it. And I think once we got into, you know, our path was we started with the analytics part of, well, hey, what if you just gave us access to some of your data? And since a lot of that was, you know, in these SaaS apps, it was just behind an API key. 
And people said, okay, that sounds reasonable. And we started to show them some reports and maybe some like segmentations of their customers. And they said, that's really interesting. Um, hey, could you export this into um, you know, something like Constant Contact or MailChimp or ExactTarget? And we said, well, what if we could just build that part of the software too? Uh, and they said, yeah, sure, uh, but can you guys do that? And so, you know, like all good entrepreneurs, we kind of like, oh, yeah, we got that figured out. Like, we're mm-hmm. already working on that. And then, um, you know, I'd spend the next couple of weeks trying to figure out, like, how we put all those pieces together. And I remember that's how we got our first customer. Uh, it was a company called Blank Label that's, um, you know, actually just down the street from um, right across yeah. down here. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Was bootstrapping a conscious choice? Yeah, so when, when we started, I always say we were kind of of two minds about bootstrapping. There was a part of me that wanted to bootstrap because in my extended family, I have a bunch of you know kind of aunts and uncles on one side of my family that run a small business. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine it's a 20-person small business that's been around for 50 or 60 years. I thought that was a really cool concept of it wasn't just a business that kind of started and then five years later it was gone and mm-hmm. got acquired. So what if we could build a business that was going to last? And that was obviously a business that you know they, they weren't a capital. Uh, you know, they had never raised any capital. They'd just grown organically. On the flip side of it, I remember thinking, boy, how on earth are we going to go pitch some VC, some investor on an idea? You know, if basically somebody could poke holes in our story, uh, we had nothing yet. So I think partially out of that fear of failing and not knowing how to raise money, but also that wanting to build something that was going to last, yeah, that led us to bootstrapping. And so mm-hmm. for us, it's funny. I look back on the first couple of years. So it was about two and a half years from when we started before we hired our first employee. Mm-hmm. You know, we basically would work first out of each other's apartments, a little bit out of, uh, we spent a lot of time with some friends at MIT, and then eventually out of a co-working space. But it was a lot of just hustling and a lot of being you know, very self-motivated of here's what we have to build, here's how we're going to help this particular customer, and just how do we get from first 10 customers, first 20 customers, first 50 customers, first 100 customers. And I think we just kind of didn't focus on anything else until we had built out the core products. And then we were fortunate enough by the time that we got to about two and a half years in, we were profitable and actually could hire our first employees. Looking back at where you are today and that process, would you do anything differently? Is there any, if you could go back in time and tell your past self something? Totally. Yeah, I definitely look back on the first couple of years pretty nostalgically at this point, but I think one of the things having bootstrapped a company now, I think we push ourselves hard, but I think there were points at which we set maybe too lofty goals. I remember pretty vividly uh, there being conversations we had around, you know, revenue goals and wanting to add 20 new customers in a month or several thousand dollars in new sales. And those goals probably just being unrealistic for where mm-hmm. we were. I'm glad we persevered through it. But a lot of what we did was we just kind of set out a plan and uh, we were okay with the fact that it was going to take in some cases like um, months, you know, three months, six months to kind of come to, to fruition and just enjoying that um, kind of ride. When I think about would we have ever have chosen to, you know, raise some money, you know, at the time I just loved building things. You know, a lot of clearly when we started was we felt like we had to build, we had to build this whole, um, you know, effectively what was like kind of like Google Analytics. We had to build this mm-hmm. whole system for tracking user activities and counting them up and scaling that. And then when it got to uh, helping people message and communicate. Um, whether it was through email or through their website or through mobile, we just had to build all those technologies out. And for every single one of those, I looked at that as it was a really fun project and it took time. I think, you know, there's no right path in terms of whether you want to raise funding, you know, for what we were doing. Like I thought it was a lot of fun and gave us the time to kind of do it at our own pace and really focus on the the product, the experience of the uh, design, but also just like the engineering, making sure that it was really solid and would scale so we could kind of, uh, we knew that it would, would grow with us. So yeah, I don't know that I would have changed that. I do think, though, we maybe were a little too aggressive on some goals. And, you know, when there's only two of you, there's so much of that relationship is so mm-hmm. sacred that uh, I think you just have to be careful about not burning each other out. Mm-hmm. Did you do that? Uh, you have to ask my co-founder about that. I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure there are points where we were both probably a little frustrated with how things were going. Um it's a really special thing to pick somebody you're going to spend all day, every day with, and especially when there's only two of you. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I feel really fortunate to have had the chance to you know work with my co-founder before we'd started, and I knew his demeanor, and we were good friends, and so I think that really even put, took that you know kind of friendship and like working relationship to another level. But felt really good that that was going to be a good fit. Yeah, I mean, there's so many highs of just the you know closing new customers, hitting goals, but yeah, one of the lows that we really helped each other through was I think. 
the first or maybe it was the second, uh, it was the end of the second year that we were working together. You know, at the time we were, pro- the business was probably doing about maybe 15 or $25,000 a month in revenue. So we were feeling pretty good about that. We'd grown a lot, you know, from the beginning of the year. And I remember the, like the last week of December, we found out that one of our bigger customers was going to cancel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, you know, like a few thousand dollars. So it was like a significant percentage of our overall revenue. And I would think we knew what we'd, you know, uh, we, why we weren't a good fit for them at the time, but that was like a big kind of punch to the gut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having somebody that's kind of there and, you know, you can, I remember we went out, we had a, at that time we had a holiday party, but they're only, uh, we had the two of us and one intern. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we still did that and I think felt good about the year, but, um, yeah, I mean, those roller coaster ups and downs, I think that was really important to have somebody kind of there. That you yeah. Can. How did that experience of losing that big customer change your mindset at all? We were just really good at persevering. Uh, mm-hmm. I look at all of the decisions we made at Clavio, none of them are always right. You just kind of try to be sober about which right. ones you would do again, which ones you wouldn't. Yeah, that was great. At that time, I think we were working with a business that today we'd say is a total sweet spot for Clavio. Mm-hmm. It's a really like rapidly scaling business. But at the time, you know, there were just two of us. Right. And it really wasn't a great fit. And we had to be sober about like, hey, are we really ready for that kind of challenge? Right. I know that Basecamp specifically says that every customer is a low value <laughs> customer. Yeah, yeah. Specifically to force the issue that we're not going to have any customer that's, you know, that hurts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are downsides to that, though, too, because they need a lot more customers mm-hmm. in order to make ends meet, basically. So there are downsides to it, too, but that's one thing. Yeah, well, uh, without a doubt, Clavia is definitely a company that believes of that base camp model. Mm-hmm. No customer of ours is, you know, even 1% of our overall revenue. Yeah, after having gone through the enterprise sales thing and seeing how much it's, oh, the sales cycles are so long, so painful, so much of it, you know, uh, people can leave companies and deals can fall apart. Mm-hmm. You know, I love building things. And, uh, you know, as much as it's never just the product, but as much as our product and our technology can kind of speak for itself, that's always meant a lot to us. And so I think the best way to kind of ensure that is if you are working with lots of businesses, then great, you get lots of shots on goal and the law of averages ought to just kind of even out, right? If you mm-hmm. have a great product, lots of people are gonna to wanna to use it, they're gonna be excited about it versus, I don't know, I've done businesses where there's only 20 or 30 clients. And- right, I think for ThoughtBot, it went some maybe a little counterintuitive, but but instead of saying, oh, when we lost our first big customer, and it wasn't, it wasn't any down, it was just that they naturally moved on, which is which mm-hmm. happens. I think we reacted to that not, oh, we need smaller customers, but rather we need new customers who are even bigger Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. so that this isn't like this shouldn't be such a big part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And that actually it was our it inspired us to grow more so that we could be more resilient to those problems. So did you look at that big customer and said, hey, there's some things we recognize that. Well, I guess we're not. So I can be specific. They were 25 percent of our revenue Mm -hmm. at the time, give or take a few percent. And so we looked at that problem and said, rather than saying, oh, we have, a, have to have a bunch of smaller customers, we said, we have to grow the pie. We just need a lot more big people <laughs> like them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we're a different business, obviously. We're not a subscription online service. Uh, so that probably influences the dynamic there. But I yeah. know that personally spurred us to grow rather than to... Well, I think if you'd asked me how I felt at the time, I mean, I was definitely, you know, disappointed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to put it mildly. I feel like if we're building the right product, basically, if we believe somebody could be a good fit for us, they ought to be a great fit. Right. Um, and nobody should be on the margins. So I think it was a year or two ago. Uh, I love this quote from Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike, or former CEO, about how he, there's just a point he was walking down the street and he got upset when he saw people that weren't wearing Nikes. So we talk about internally, it's, look, we may not be the best fit for everybody, but right. if you're trying to build relationships and experiences for your customers, I want to see everybody wearing Clavios, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody should be running our software. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, then that means we're just not done yet. We still yeah. have more to go. Well, on that note, you exist in a fairly crowded marketplace. Everything from, well, I've had some of the, the guests on, on this program and there's others in the marketplace and it's not just even direct competitors, but like lots of overlap with companies like Drift and Intercom and that kind of thing. So how do you, on a day-to-day basis, how do you think about competition and how does it inspire you to do or not do things in a certain way? Well, first of all, what inspires me, you know, why spend so much time building a product and then, you know, surrounding that product with a company and uh, a community. 
there's a book I really like, uh, Walter Isaacson that wrote the a, Steve, a good Steve Jobs biography, mm-hmm. and then a couple of other um, good books. Uh, wrote this anthology of technology called um, Innovators, and in it he talks about like the history of computing throughout the you know 18th century and the 19th century, or, or sorry, the 18th, 19th, and then 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's probably only like 20 or 30 companies that are listed in that book. And what drives me is that there are going to be these big technology revolutions that happen. And there's going to be these companies that kind of usher them in. They bring them to the mainstream. And a lot of them, I think a lot of the problems are kind of self-evident. You just just see them. They're out there. And it's just a question of who's going to basically figure them out, who's going to take the technology and basically bring it to the masses to make it scale, to make it easy to use and approachable. So my goal, or one of the things that drives me, has been when they write the next chapter of that book in, say, 2100, is Klaviyo going to be one of those companies that's in that book? And like, what would cause a company to be in that book? And so when I look at the space of how businesses communicate with their users and customers, really I think about how humans communicate from one to many in general. I feel like it's just, it's very broken. The way that we do it is it's it's very kind of blast oriented, very generic. Mm-hmm. A lot of the personality that we get when you and I are even speaking to each other, uh, we're really good at you know doing our research, asking questions, listening, absorbing that data, making decisions about what we want to say, and then communicating that back in a thoughtful way. For whatever reason, when we're, if we're as good as we are as doing this one-on-one, we're terrible at doing it to large groups. And I think that's just a function of our kind of humanity. So one of the things that fascinates me is what would it take to build technology that can kind of scale that humanity, that personality that we each of us has? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you know businesses really are doing with their customers. I think they're desperate. You know, I talk to people; they're desperate to figure out how to do that, and they actually have a lot of ideas of, th- of you know experiences that they can deliver individually that they want to try to build. They just don't have the technology to do it. Mm-hmm. It's been so difficult to wrangle a lot of the decisions that we make about how I'm going to ask you a question or some advice I'm going to give you boils down to data I know about you. I find that it's like a lot of companies, that data is siloed in a whole bunch of different systems, and they can't pull it all into one place. And so that's a problem that Clavio has been obsessed with since we started. Once we all have it in that place, I think, you know, when you think about the way the human brain works, some of the logic that we apply, we're very good at storing information and then recalling it very quickly, right? I could ask you for a recommendation for a restaurant, you know, downtown here, and you would know it probably, you know, within 10 seconds, you'd have some ideas, right? That's mm-hmm. just the way we work, right? We don't compute the way a computer does. So we had to find a way then to like take this information and, you know, or you have to find a way to store this information in a way that's very fast to recall, fast to make decisions. And then you have to be expressive in your communication, right? And so I just think about all the different things that go into what make us human and what makes our relationships and our communication personal. And none of that has translated very well into software. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know why that is. Those are pretty tough problems. But I talk to customers of ours, users of ours all the time. And I think they all have this dream of, I want to be able to create some experience for my customers. I want to be able to dream that up on my way to work. And then by the time I get, you know, by, by lunchtime, it exists. It's a thing that is in the world. When I talk to people today, they say, man, that would take me weeks or months. A lot of our sales conversations are people bringing us their kind of like dream list of these are the experiences I wish I could offer my customers and saying, I've been spending the last two, three years trying to figure out how to make all of these possible. But every time I talk to somebody, they promise me that it'll happen. And six months, 12 months later, I have I've barely gotten started. So I think what's going to happen is somebody's going to come along and build the technology, the software that makes it possible for each of us to say, if you have a business, what are the experiences you want to exist? And they'll be so. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing we're building towards. I then think it's interesting when you couple on top of that, say as an entrepreneur or somebody that's newer to a specific field, you just don't know what those experiences should be. Mm-hmm. A lot of our community, the reason there's such a big community around Clavio is they're just swapping ideas with one another. Mm-hmm. They want to know what works. And you realize you're like, oh, yeah, as humans, we're, you know, we've only had the benefit of the experiences that we've had. Um, we've only had so much time to trial and error our own ideas. So we're constantly trying to pattern match against others. I think it's possible for us, too, to take the same kind of logic of how we think and how we learn and basically build that into software as well. Mm-hmm. So the dream for us is what if you could build the infrastructure, you know, the platform where any idea, any experience you want to deliver to a customer, that's just something you can build in a matter of minutes, right? Um, or at worst, hours. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, when you're out of ideas, our software or software in general will help you just come up with new ones. And so in the future, you can imagine, like, especially if you're a builder uh, like I am, if you like love engineering things, love building things, 
then almost you can come up with any product or service or any idea. And if you make it so, you can almost bring it to market, so to speak, and just know that you're going to maximize the value of that thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's no guarantee that that idea is a good one. But if you have an idea, you don't have to worry about, well, did I explain it well to you know this user? Did I explain it in a way that feels personal, tied to their context? Mm -hmm. All of that will just automatically happen. Mm -hmm. We know how to do that as individuals, so I think it's just a matter of time before technology makes that possible. And I don't know whether that's in one years, two years, 10 years, but it's going to happen. And I hope it, you know, hope it could be us. Mm -hmm. So what I hear in that answer is that you're focused on like long-term vision and big vision and really understanding your customers rather than like, oh, this competitor launched this new feature and we need to make sure that. Yeah. So that. go all the way back to competitors. I think anybody that's similarly thinking as long-term as we are, as big mm -hmm. as we are, is really exciting. And certainly, you know, we're constantly trying to learn from the other things that we're seeing, you know, uh, when, whether it's customers or other products that are doing something that's interesting. Yeah, I just, I, I, we try to spend very little time, no time thinking about, you know, I think there's so many platforms or apps out there that are, they're helping make things a little less painful, but they're mm -hmm. not really trying to solve for the big pain. Mm -hmm. And so our belief is, yeah, those little tiny incremental changes don't really mean much. We need to go for the big changes. So in your business, you mentioned, you know, starting day one or day 60, you're being like, okay, well, how do we get the next 10 customers? How do we get the next 20? And now you have 10,000 customers. So where was the shift along the way? Where did the momentum change in terms of your business? Yeah. So I have a theory. People talk about business software, you know, becoming more of a consumer experience, like mm -hmm. the consumerization of, you know, business software. Which basically is to say is that we're going to start to we're learning about evaluating the whole thing, uh, software the way that you would I don't know consumer good right laundry right. detergent. I think a corollary to that is it means that the way that people learn about business software is becoming a lot more viral, mm -hmm. and so the network effects start to matter a lot more. So for us, it was very much like a snowballing. You know, uh, once we had our first ten, twenty, a hundred customers. You know, one of the great things about bootstrapping is it kind of forces you to stay really close to your customers. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the first employee we ever hired was a woman to help us in uh, support. And the reason was because I would spend basically from, you know, 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. every morning just answering, you know, like help desk tickets. And it was only once, once those were totally cleared out that then I would go then start building whatever the next thing was. Right. And so that was basically that was the first reason why I hired them is to spend more time so we could spend more time building. But anyways, as part of that, you stay really close to those customers. You make sure they're really happy. And then what we found was when we asked people how they heard about us, certainly some of people had heard us through some of the marketing we were doing then. But a lot of them were saying, it's like, well, no, no, I either you know, either have another business, I'm actually already a Clavio customer, or I was referred by somebody that I talked to that was at this conference or this group mm -hmm. um, or as a friend of mine. And then we were really shocked at how viral it was. And that's actually become a big part of our strategy mm -hmm. is the happier, you know, our customers are, the more we believe they're just talking with each other. And so, you know, the same way that you think about Facebook or Instagram might grow and they think about, well, is it every friend, every person on our platform referring at least one other person? If so, then you have a viral product. Mm -hmm. uh, we think about very much the same way. For everybody that's a promoter of Clavio, that's loving what the, what, how it's working, there are opportunities for them to share it. Are we helping them find those opportunities? And then and obviously just making sure that they really are happy so that when that time mm -hmm. comes of, hey, you know, what are you using to communicate with your customers? They're going to say us. Did you do anything specific to encourage that? Did you build and roll out referral programs or anything like that to help encourage people, or was it all informal? Yeah, it was all informal. Um, it's something we're starting to think about formalizing. There's something to be said for having it happen organically oh, and totally, not yeah. artificially. Yeah, it's been fascinating watching the things that will happen organically as you grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this was the first year. Uh, Twenty. I mean, the first couple of years, it was. It, we. I mean, really, to be honest, we were even bad at measuring all of that, mm -hmm. right? It was only really this year that we've gotten better at it and just started to realize there's a huge ecosystem of customers and then a lot of agencies just growing up around Clavio, mm -hmm. you know, helping people um, think about the experiences they want to build, think about their marketing. Yeah. And so this was the first year that we decided, hey, you know, we realized that we could go to any city, uh, any major city in the U.S. and we sort of had critical mass to pull together a customer group. Mm -hmm. And why weren't we doing that? Well, we loved talking to our customers, so we should do that. And so this was the first year we do that. And that's, that's going to be a big part of our strategy going forward. Mm -hmm. 
What's the big thing that you hear from your customers now of like, we would love it if Clavio did this? And more, a bigger picture, like what is your process for incorporating that feedback into your product development cycle? Yeah, there's so many things that uh, we get asked about. I, I think the biggest one is helping them figure out what experiences are gonna have the most impact on their growth. Mm-hmm. Almost every business I talk to, whether it's an entrepreneur that's just getting off the ground or it's a business that has you know their venture backed and they have big growth targets for next year, they're all looking at ways that, you know, how do I get closer to my customers so that I can grow? And mm-hmm. that's what they care about. They mm-hmm. care about growth. And so most of our customers will measure that in sales, but it doesn't really matter. They're going to measure that in some sort of growth metric. And they want us to give them the answer to that. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously a great question because if we had the secret formula there, it's like, well, right. we could just we'd start all sorts of businesses. This, right? this is perfect because it, it's not some specific feature, but it's, it's more of an abstract. We'd love it if we could get this. Right. So then how do you take that sort of vague notion and turn it into a product improvement? Yeah, so our key metric internally, whereas a lot of marketplaces will measure the you know the number of transactions mm-hmm. um, or the you know quantity of dollars that flow through their system, the way we think about Clavio is we don't care how many emails our customers send, and we don't care how many say you know like experiences they deliver. We care about the value that those experiences have for their you know their customers and the businesses that we're working with. So internally, we measure, we have this acronym, we call it KAV, which is Clavio Attributed Value, which is basically our own attribution modeling that we do against those experiences to figure out like which ones are the most valuable, which ones are having an impact on users, either in terms of you know, engagements, activity in an app or on a website, um, or sales or whatever that is. And so that's the thing that we are laser focused on. All of our product and engineering teams focus on that. That's our kind of North Star. Mm-hmm. We believe that if we can increase that, then that's great. Then we're totally aligned with our customers. When we think about how we prioritize things, one, just as an engineer and somebody that uh, you know, loves building product, if I'm a user of a piece of software, nothing makes me more excited than when they release new features. Mm-hmm. So we have a goal internally of can we work towards a day when every week we're releasing multiple new features that our customers are excited about? I remember back in, this is probably 2007, 2008, when jQuery was all the rage, when that was the thing. And I remember, you know, the holidays, they once had this like 12 days of jQuery. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who used jQuery, I was like, wow, that's really cool. There's 12 new things coming out and they did all this marketing around it. And so ever since then, I've been like, man, we should do the same thing with Clavio. But what if it wasn't just once a year? What if it just, that's the way it was? It was mm-hmm. just always that way. You didn't have to wait for kind of quarterly releases or, you know, it was just every week there's something new. So we set a goal internally and said, well, could we release one meaningful thing? Something that if we we talk about internally as something that we think is blog worthy, something mm-hmm. that it's like, if you saw in our product blog, you'd be like, oh, that's exciting. It may apply directly to you. It may not, but you'd have empathy that it was something that mattered. What if we could do that once a week? What if you do that twice a week? What if we could do it three times? A week? What if we could do it every day? And that's what we've set for ourselves as a goal. Mm-hmm. So as we scale, we think about as the team grows, like every time our product engineering team doubles, we should roughly be able to double the number of things that we can share. So that's the cadence that we want to set. So no matter what you need from us, we're always shipping something that you're going to be excited about. Then in terms of like how we prioritize things, because we're going so fast, uh, if that's going to be the cadence, yeah, it's, let's not worry too hard about the exact specifics. Mm-hmm. If we think they're tied towards something that's going to help somebody increase that you know, value attributed to our software, then let's just push it. Let's just do it. So in general, like I ask, you know, product managers on Eclavio are responsible for taking a list of ideas relative to the, you know, the part of our platform that they're responsible for and prioritizing them. And they're responsible for some justification of that. It's, you know, we don't argue it down to the, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, some people say it's like, well, what's the exact number of customers or the total dollar value of that? We don't get that pedantic about it. I care much more about the process and just moving quickly than like being specific, super specific about the prioritization. So we'll come up with big themes like that. And then once we've done that, we have a pretty well-defined process of how we go from here's a kernel of an idea to here's a written spec towards working with an engineering team and sort of like vetting that and saying it's like, okay, are all the details kind of like ironed out from a product user experience perspective mm-hmm. to our engineering team, then we'll write out what we call internally an RFC. Like they'll write out their own technical spec of how they're going to build it. They'll go build it, you know, and then we'll test it, we'll release it, and then we'll announce it. Mm-hmm. And our goal is to basically make that process as easy as possible so that, you know, you can imagine conceptually, it's like we organize our engineering teams 
into teams of typically between, you know, it's two or three engineers, uh, product manager, product designer. And those teams have autonomy to build their own roadmap and then just ship. You know, the only thing rules are is like they have to measure out what is that Clavio attributed value relative to their part of the product. And they have to be trying, they have to have a, you know, kind of a thesis on how they're going to increase that mm-hmm. and then measure that out. And then they need to be releasing constantly. Mm-hmm. So we think about that as, you know, that's the ultimate goal. The one other caveat there is, uh, engineers at Clavio make the decisions around kind of in what order we work. So which features or which, you know, scaling um, initiatives we have like get worked on first. So we know that as like, as we're growing fast, you build things and sometimes the way that you built them the first time ends up not being the way that people actually use it. Or uh, you realize you have to scale something from what it's doing today to 10x or 100x that scale. So our engineering team is responsible for figuring out whether or not we can work on things that are new or improvements or whether it makes sense to invest back in like the platform that we're already building. Mm-hmm. And just since my background as an engineer is being able to do everything soup to nuts from you do all the infrastructure, the DevOps, all the backend work, uh, figuring out how to lay out data in a database, to all the front end work, building great experiences. You know, we want our engineering teams and our product teams to do the same thing. So they have total ownership of like kind of the entire stack. And, uh, you know, as we've grown, you know, now our engineering team is about 50 people. We just have a lot of teams or pods that just, you know, have these kind of roughly defined like contracts and boundaries between them. Mm-hmm. Do the product managers, are they one-to-one with those pods or, okay, so. I've always liked, a, you know, 1PM works with one team and a small number of engineers. Mm-hmm. And then that in team includes a designer. Yeah, it depends. I mean, right. So we have some teams that are more focused on some of our, you imagine in this, like, well, how do, you know, some the of the infrastructure systems teams, are, yeah. right, are running, executing logic, compute, mm-hmm. storing data. Um, so the PM there may functionally be an engineer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, any team that's focused on the front ends, uh, and it, it's a collaboration. Different. I mean, it's interesting to watch how different teams will solve the same problems in slightly different ways. Some teams, mm-hmm. the PM really takes total ownership of that user experience. Other teams, it's very collaborative. Uh, they like to all participate in that. Mm-hmm. So as, that's why it's really important for us that as long as we have kind of the same steps in the process, mm-hmm. we can have different owners uh, depending on who's working with it. But at least we have the same language to talk about how we're thinking about approaching a problem. So in case somebody else wants to get involved or like give feedback, like they kind of know how we're working. Mm-hmm. How siloed are those individual teams then? Yeah. So I'll answer that on two fronts. So one from one another, uh, not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's probably one of the more interesting parts of us growing as a company, especially growing really fast. You know, our engineering team three years ago was myself and uh, then eventually one other engineer. To have it go from two to 50 that quickly, you realize there's a lot of pain around just communicating. Where mm-hmm. are the things, what, you know, what are the contracts that exist between us and making sure those are well-defined? That's something we're still getting good at. But what's the most important there is just lots of information sharing. So we are constantly, you know, every time that we write one of these, you know, internal specs, whether it's a product spec or it's a engineering spec, we share them around. Not everybody's expected to comment or read mm-hmm. through them, but everybody should know where those are and they act as documentation for how our systems work. So between the teams, there's a lot of sharing. And then internally, we have a couple of mechanisms. We have tech talks that we do every week where we'll share system designs or patterns that we've used that we've had success with. We also informally do an internal engineering podcast mm-hmm. where we just sit around a table much like this one and uh, we'll talk about some topic. So, you know, whether it's like front end design or, you know, how we store and index data or just how we write specifications, like we'll just share those insights so people can learn about what each person's working on. Yeah. So amongst our engineering teams, that's that's one piece of it. But then more broadly, like what we've worked really hard that our engineering teams are not walled off mm-hmm. from our customer success team, from our sales mm-hmm. team. I just think all the magic of what we've been able to do is staying so close to our end users. Mm-hmm. You know, so everybody on our engineering team is expected or, you know, does like participate in talking to users and customers. So whether it's going on site, helping out with emails or your chats that come in or sitting in on calls, all that happens, but then just being really accessible. So we try to organize a lot of time where people are just sharing stories about here's something I heard that maybe you weren't part of that conversation so that you know they have more empathy for mm-hmm. end users. I think it, one of the crazy things that happens is when things start to become, you know, I don't know, Jira tickets, right? Or errors mm-hmm. in a century, you start to lose a little bit of the empathy that you get because everybody just starts to become a name or a number. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really a person anymore. When you hear somebody's voice and you hear the kind of the pain of, you know, oh, here's how I use your software and it takes me this long, you almost instantly want to solve for it. Mm-hmm. So that's something we spend a lot of time just trying to make as many of those opportunities and experiences as we can. Do you think your current team structure 
is going to work indefinitely? <laughs> or do you anticipate the need to change as, as you continue to scale? Yeah, I don't know. This is, the, this is the biggest company I've ever been a part of. So yeah. I definitely am constantly looking for advice. But I hope we can keep it going like this as long as we can. I love the idea of working you know, in small groups. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have so much agency and control. I think the big key for us is defining those like contracts, like just what, you know, how are we going to work together? I mean, you think about, you know, there's so many companies out there that are all building software of all different like shapes and sizes and they're expected to fit together. And they do more or less because there's, there's these well-defined like boundaries mm -hmm. um, and you know, kind of like, you know, the inputs into this one system will yield, you know, whatever outputs. I think we can do the same thing. I think what's hard is when you grow from like a smaller company to a bigger one, it's hard to keep in mind how much time you have to spend just communicating. Right. And so, uh, yeah, that's something we're just going to have to... I don't well, know, you made about. the comment like, our goal is if we double the size of the team, we double the output. Right. That's very hard to actually achieve. Yeah. <laughs> so I, like, I, I have such respect like for our team because it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's an aspirational goal, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's achievable, but a lot of it is like we're figuring things out that I think even collectively when we talk is... As a team, none of us have ever really been at a company that's been able to work that way at the mm -hmm. scale that we're right. at now, let alone even larger, right? So yeah, we're all kind of on this journey together, figuring it out. Yes, we'll see. I think clearly articulating that that's one of the goals helps. I think probably at a lot of companies, it, that's not articulated as a goal. Yeah. I think what's, what's cool is when you talk to our customers and we share with them what we've built in our product in the last month or last couple of months, and you show them, you know, kind of this list of all of these amazing things, and then they drill in and say, like, you know, here's the four or five we think are really applicable to you, people's eyes just, like, light up. I mean, mm -hmm. they've just got these big grins that they, like, can't wipe off, because they're like, wow, nobody we work with moves this fast. And every time, they're like, how do you guys do it? And I was, it's like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it takes, an, it first takes an incredible group of people that individually really understand the ins and outs of you know what it takes to build write great code ship great code build great systems but then we have to really collaborate together in a big way to make that happen i mean it's like the magic when you see a really good um sports team mm -hmm. and they're just really operating really well they're playing really well it just looks so fluid and you say right. wow that, that's incredible how can they be this good and it's like yeah there's so much work that goes into that it's very validating i think right for me and I think everybody else at Clavio, when you get these people that say, I just can't believe you did this, it really feels like magic. Mm -hmm. But it's just because, yeah, we're thinking really carefully about the process, how we do it, and constantly trying yeah. to make it. We get this at ThoughtBot in a really funny way because we're, we work with outside people. So they come in and they see how relaxed we are. And they're so used to seeing environments that are, quote unquote, highly productive, be like big balls of stress and urgency and all this. And they can't quite comprehend. Like, they believe that we're not as good because they, they're like, how can you possibly be this relaxed yeah, or this nonchalant? And it's like, I use the analogy of a sports team. Mm -hmm. Like, the professional sports team isn't out there, like, being super stressed over their work. They're making it look easy. Mm -hmm. And when you see a highly performing team, they make it look easy. Yeah. One of our core values is about learning and learning from others and from other companies and just, you know, mm -hmm. taking the best practices from everything. And I think one of the things we've learned is that you can put a lot of hard work into something. Um, you can uh, you can work a lot of hours. That doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean you're working smart. Right. And so that's the thing we often have. Hey, sometimes just because we're working hard doesn't mean we're doing it the best way possible. And sometimes we have to back up and recognize that and maybe, you know, think about how we're going to tweak what we're doing. And that's even more fun when you're trying to do it and go faster and faster and faster because mm -hmm. uh, you have to basically, you have to figure those things out really quickly. So, you know, just for us, a commitment to, hey, whatever process we have today may not be the perfect one. So there's nothing that's, you know, sacred. We're willing mm -hmm. to like rethink anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been really important. Yeah. Yeah. As CEO, how close are you to the code and to engineering now? Yeah. Not as close as I used to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, personally, uh, somebody that believes so deeply in product and technology, I think it's part of my job, whether it's our code or some code, be using our products in some sort of code or technology all the time. So for me, whether that's mostly like nights and weekends at this point, mm -hmm. it's hard to really make good decisions or feel like you can contribute to decision-making uh, without doing that. So for me, that's that's a constant you know, 10, 20% of my time. But we have a bunch of traditions at Clavio, like things that we do you know, every week. Basically, so that everybody can understand what we're working on 
And so a couple of those are, you know, we do a product and engineering review of kind of what we've been working on for the week, you know, where things are at. And similarly for product design, um, we do that every Friday afternoon. That's a part, you know, I, I mean, I love having those kinds of conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And it's great talking through, you know, some of the user experience decisions we've made and um, have a forum for that where we can be both critical of each other, but also empathize, uh, you know, all of the work that we put into something. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love those kinds of things. And um, I think it's just, it's, you know, it's fun to share my experiences from the last, whatever it is, like 10 plus years building software. I've, here's all the challenges I've run into. And here's how maybe some of that are things that other engineers or product designers can use when they're building software at Clavio. One of the things I think about Clavio as a company is I I want it to be a place that really talented engineers, product managers, designers can come work where you get to work on really challenging high-scale problems that are going to have impact, that have lots of customers. Mm-hmm. But really, it's like if you want to learn those skills so that someday you can be that design lead, that CTO, that founder of a company, especially if you plan on being a product-led, engineering-led company, if that's what you mm-hmm. want to be, you know, your sort of number one thing, it just takes a lot of learning. So my hope is that, you know, I've had a lot of great mentors in terms of people that have helped me understand that. That was my path. It's like, figure all that stuff out. And then once you know that, then it's like, well, you can figure out the business side of it. But at least you know you can build great products. And if you believe that great products, people will buy great products, you can probably figure out the rest. But building great products is hard. And you have to set yourself a really high bar. So I try to spend a lot of my time, how can I pay it forward to everybody that's maybe hasn't had the chance to get the mentorship? And just share with them, it's like, yeah, here's what I've seen. Like the problems you're going to encounter are probably different than the ones I did. But in some ways, hopefully my experiences, you know, mm-hmm. those can be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, thanks for stopping by and sharing those experiences a little bit with us today. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about Clavio, where's the place where they can do that? Yeah, awesome. So go check out our website, clavio.com, K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. And I guess if you want to follow me, uh, yeah, Twitter or social media, I'm always A. Bialecki. Thanks very much. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.